0: Harry Houdini, considered to be the greatest escape artist of all time. I remember as a young boy being fascinated by stories of this legendary showman. I would have loved to have been in the audience at one of his performances. He would free himself from jail cells, from handcuffs, from chains, ropes, from straitjackets. And when that kind of stuff got boring, he moved on to being immersed into a water-filled milk can, locked inside it, and then escaping from that. His most famous feat was escaping from what was called the Chinese water torture cell. In that trick, Houdini's feet would be locked in stocks. He'd be suspended upside down in midair with his ankles in a restraint brace. He'd be lowered into a chamber overflowing with water and then the restraint would be fastened to the top of the chamber. And somehow, Houdini would even escape from that. But his greatest escape never happened. Never did. You see, before he died, Harry Houdini told his wife, Bess, that he would come back from the dead. And he even gave her a secret code that only she would know, so that she could be sure that it was actually him coming back from the dead. He was going to escape death. But then he died. And for ten years, on the anniversary of his death, which happened to be Halloween, Bess took part in seances and kept waiting for him to return. But he never did. In fact, you may remember seeing in the news just two or three weeks ago, Houdini's grandnephew announced that he was going to ask the courts to exhume Houdini's body so that they could confirm the cause of death. Because there's been a lot of debate and speculation about that over the years. But how could they do that? How could they exhume the body? They could only do it because they know where the body is. It's still in the grave. He didn't come back from the dead. Now, I mentioned that his wife took part in seances for 10 years, waiting for his return. After that final seance, she blew out the candle that she kept by his picture. And later on, she would say, 10 years is long enough to wait for any man. What a terrible thing Harry Houdini did to her. What a thing he did to his wife. This great escape artist convinced his own wife that he'd come back from the dead. And because of that, because of what he did, she couldn't go on with her own life. For ten years, she just kept waiting. How wasted were those ten years? How pointless? How meaningless? But let me ask you this. What if Jesus pulled the same stunt? What if Jesus claimed to have power over life and death? And what if he claimed that he could come back from the dead? And what if he made all of these claims, but what if he never did? What if the resurrection never happened? You know, there are people today who would call themselves Christians, but who actually doubt that the resurrection actually took place. And I've got to tell you, I can't wrap my brain around this. I mean, how can you call yourself a Christian when you reject the core event of Christianity? Maybe you can remember a little over a month ago when the whole lost tomb of Jesus thing was big in the news. James Cameron, a Hollywood producer, had produced a documentary that claimed that they had found the lost tomb of Jesus, bones and all. Well, we actually looked at the evidence here one morning in our worship celebration, and we saw that the facts don't support the claim at all. It was just a sensationalized documentary with no historical or archaeological support. Well, a couple of years ago, the Anglican Bishop of Perth in Australia was presented with this hypothetical question. What would happen if suddenly the tomb of Jesus was found? And it really was the tomb of Jesus. And the body was still there. What would happen to your faith? Would it be destroyed? And the bishop responded, Of course not. It wouldn't destroy my faith. Jesus is risen in my heart. What a bogus claim. I mean, it sounds sweet and all, but what a bogus claim. You know what? Christianity, out of all the world's religions, is the easiest one to discredit all you have to do is present a body. That's it. If you can prove that Jesus didn't physically rise from the dead, then you can destroy Christianity, regardless of whether you believe he's risen in your heart or not. Consider Buddhism. In Buddhism, for that religion, it doesn't really matter if Buddha ever existed. Because that religion is based on a system of philosophy. Whether... Gautama Buddha actually existed is irrelevant. Or suppose you could prove that Krishna never existed. Would that destroy Hinduism? No, because Hinduism has millions of gods. You lose one, you just move on to the next. Plus, the whole system of Hinduism is based on karma and reincarnation. You get rid of Krishna, Hinduism survives. What about Islam? Well, the greatest historical claim for a Muslim is that Muhammad was the last and greatest prophet. He's the one who wrote the Quran. But say you can somehow prove, somehow prove, I don't really think you can prove this, but say you could somehow prove that Muhammad didn't write the Quran. Suppose someone else wrote it. Well, I think the Muslim community might object to that, and they may be a little surprised. But if you could actually prove it, I think they'd respond by explaining that even though they do believe that Muhammad was the last and greatest prophet and that Allah's final revelation was revealed to and through him, that Muhammad himself was not the revelation. And Allah could have used someone else to write it down. It doesn't really matter if it was Muhammad or not. But Christianity, Christianity is based on actual historic events particularly the life ministry death and resurrection of Jesus Christ disprove any of that and you've destroyed Christianity over the last little while I've been doing a lot of reading and listening and watching in the area between the uh, the debate between Christianity and atheism and one of the atheists that I've listened to is Dr. Brian Edwards. And this is what he has to say. He said, Deprived of the basic tenets of the Christian faith, the Protestant churches in particular have become wishy-washy institutions peddling confusing, warm, fuzzy messages of non-judging reassurance. God has been redefined out of existence. Although one could respect the old-time religion, one can have nothing but contempt for the modern liberal cleric who believes in nothing but lacks the intellectual or moral courage to toss his dog collar in the wastebasket and call himself an atheist. Strong words from Ryan Edwards, but you know what? I agree 100% with what he's saying. You take away the core beliefs of Christianity, and Christianity is worthless, particularly in terms of the resurrection. If the resurrection didn't really happen then our faith is useless. But you know what? Brian Edwards was not the first person to present this argument. As early as 20 years after the, the crucifixion, the Apostle Paul addressed this same problem. This problem of throwing out the core of the Christian faith. Let me read for you a passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where Paul addresses this. and we're going to, Then we're going to go back through it a bit at a time, okay? First Corinthians chapter 15, starting at verse 12. Paul wrote, But tell me this, since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying there will be no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless, and your faith is useless. And we apostles would all be lying about God, for we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there's no resurrection of the dead. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. That's what Paul wrote. So what if the resurrection never happened? What if we've placed our faith in this historical event that's really just a delusion, a hoax, a lie? What difference does it make? Well, let me tell you. It makes a world of difference. Let me describe five of the consequences of believing in a fake resurrection. What if the resurrection never happened? Well, the first consequence is this. Every church in the world should shut its doors and stop spreading false hope. If the resurrection never happened, then we're just wasting our time here this morning. And the hours I spend preparing these messages, just a colossal waste of time. This is how Paul said it in verse 14. He said, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless. Now, you know, it's every preacher's secret fear that his preaching is useless anyway. But usually it's just because We're afraid that we're not communicating well enough or that people aren't responding and applying the messages. But I can't think of anything more useless than preaching a lie. But if that's what we're doing, then we should all just head home right now. should shut our doors and stop spreading false hope. A second consequence is that our faith is nothing more than wishful thinking. If the resurrection never happened, our faith is nothing more than wishful thinking. Going back to verse 14, Paul had said, If Christ had not been raised, your faith is useless. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we're just believing what we want to believe. Kind of like that Anglican bishop. Well, Jesus didn't really rise, well, he's risen in my heart, and that's good enough. Well, no, it's not. If the facts conclusively prove that the resurrection didn't happen, then that disproves it. discredits Christianity. That bishop was going to believe it anyway. Why was he going to do that? Because that's what he wants to believe. It makes him feel good. But if the resurrection didn't happen, then his faith would be nothing more than wishful thinking. If your faith is based on a lie, then it's just a lie, no matter how much you want to believe it. Just wishing something were true doesn't make it true. A third consequence, if the resurrection really didn't happen, then all Christian leaders are are either deluded or out-and-out liars. Now, that's a nice thought, eh? But that's what Paul said in verse 15 of 1 Corinthians 15. He said, And we apostles would all be lying about God, for we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. Now, I can only speak for myself, but I'm pretty sure that I'm not intentionally lying to you. But then if I were, what I actually tell you? As for being deluded, well, if I'm deluded, do I know that I'm deluded? But if the resurrection didn't happen, and I believe it did, then that's what I am, deluded. Oh, and by the way, so are you. And now we get to the real biggie. If the resurrection never happened, this, number four, we are lost to our sinfulness with no chance of forgiveness or eternal life. Think about it. What is the basis of the Christian hope? Our hope is based on the fact that Jesus has power over life and death. That he proved it by his resurrection. And that means that he has the authority to forgive us for our sinfulness and to offer us eternal life in its place. Isn't that the basis of our hope? But without the resurrection, all of that goes out the window. This is what Paul said in verses 17 and 18. He said, And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. So he's saying that without the resurrection, we're all lost, no matter how much we want to believe otherwise. We're still lost to our sinfulness with no chance of forgiveness or eternal life. And number five, the conclusion to all the rest if the resurrection never happened, we are the most misguided, most pathetic people in the world. Now, how's that for a revelation? Doesn't it just make you feel good? Aren't you glad you came here this morning? But it's true. If the resurrection never happened, then we're the most misguided, most pathetic people in the world. We've been duped. We've been conned. We've been deceived, we've been fooled, we've been misled to the point that we commit our lives to this con artist named Jesus and we gather to worship him and we give him money as an expression of praise and we do things for him, we do things in his name, all for a guy who performed the ultimate hoax 2,000 years ago if the resurrection never happened. Paul said in verse 19, If our hope in Christ is only for this life, We are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. Well, I really don't want that to be true of me. How about you? But without the resurrection, that's exactly what we are. So I desperately want the resurrection to be true. But just because I want it to be true doesn't make it true. So what do I base my belief in the resurrection on? What's the foundation for my belief? Well, admittedly, I believe it partly because the Bible says it happened. I believe the Bible's the word of God. I believe it's true. And so I trust it when it says that the resurrection happened. But there's more to it than that. I don't believe it just because I believe it. I don't believe it just because it says so in a book. I believe it because I think the evidence points to it. You see, contrary to what some people think, and I've heard this recently on talk shows and in the news, uh, interviews, I've read it. People think that, that faith goes against the facts and turns its back on reality. But real faith doesn't do that. That's a blind faith. Real faith looks at the evidence. It evaluates it. It interprets it. And then it takes a step in the direction the evidence points. Jesus himself endorsed this understanding of what faith is. John the Baptist was kind of a forerunner for Jesus. Uh, John the Baptist had set the stage for Jesus to come and to minister for those three years leading up to his crucifixion. And John the Baptist recognized who Jesus was. And he told people to follow him. But then John was arrested and he was thrown into prison. And while he was there, he began to experience doubts himself about who Jesus really was. And so he sent some of his followers to Jesus to confirm his identity. He sent some followers to ask him, Are you really the one? Or should we expect someone else? And what did Jesus tell them? What did he tell these followers of John? He told them, Look at the evidence. I give sight to the blind. The lame can walk. The deaf can hear. I heal the lepers. I raise the dead. I deliver the good news to the poor. Look at the evidence. Who do you think I am? So what is the evidence? And where does the evidence point? Well, let me give you five points of evidence that lead me to conclude that Jesus rose from the dead. Five proofs that Jesus rose from the dead. The first is this, the change in the disciples. What happened to the disciples after the crucifixion? They were disheartened, they were depressed, they felt defeated, they basically gave up and went back to fishing or whatever else they did to earn a living. They certainly didn't expect Jesus to be coming back. They thought it was over. But what happened? This bizarre group of depressed, frightened, mostly uneducated men went on to change the world. Why? What made the difference? What made this change in their lives? Well, John Scott, John Stott, one of the leading theologians in the world today, has addressed this very issue and he said perhaps the transformation of the disciples is the greatest evidence of all for the resurrection. When Jesus died, they were heartbroken, confused, and frightened, but within less than 2 months they came out of hiding, full of joy, confidence, and courage. What can account for this dramatic transformation? Only the resurrection together with Pentecost, which followed soon afterwards. That's what John Stott said. The British scholar N.T. Wright looked at the change in the disciples and how they went on to change the world, including how they, on one day, convinced 3,000 people to place their faith in a risen Jesus. And he concluded, this is why, as a historian, I cannot explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus rose again, leaving an empty tomb behind him. So one of the proofs that leads me to conclude that Jesus rose from the dead is the change in the disciples. The second proof would be the eyewitness accounts. The eyewitness accounts. Do you know that there are 11 times recorded in the Bible that Jesus appeared to people after his death? He appeared to individuals, to the disciples, and one time he appeared to a group of over 500 people all all at once. And remember, when these biblical accounts were being written, most of these people were still alive and could have denied that it ever happened. But they didn't. 550-some people, at least, saw Jesus after the resurrection. Now, some people today claim that these were all hallucinations. And I can understand that if Jesus only appeared to individuals. It could have simply been wish fulfillment. But Jesus didn't just appear to individuals, he appeared to groups of people too. And hallucinations are not group events, at least not outside of the 1960s. And the truth is that having 500 different people experience the same hallucination at the same time would be a greater miracle than the resurrection itself. Think about this, if you were in a court of law and 550 people came in and testified that something happened, wouldn't you believe them? No court in the world could justify throwing out their testimony. They'd have to conclude that it actually happened. And the fact that these accounts are packaged together in our Bible today doesn't disqualify them. Just because someone has a vested interest in something being true doesn't mean that they can't give an honest account of what happened. All books of history are written with a bias or from a certain perspective and that doesn't invalidate them. So just because the accounts of the resurrection are found in what's considered to be a religious book in our Bible, that doesn't mean that somebody made them up. They were all historic documents. They weren't bound together originally. These were all separate books written by different people, different accounts, written independently of each other. There were multiple accounts attested by different people written from different perspectives but with amazing consistency. And it's important to recognize how early these written accounts appeared. There's always some debate about this, but some of the writings can be traced back to within five to seven years of the crucifixion. Twenty years on the outside. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting at verse 3 and a couple of verses after that, Paul quotes one of the early Christian creeds about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that creed, not Paul's writing, but that creed itself, can we trace back to within eighteen months? Why is that important? Well, three reasons. Accuracy. The closer it was, the more accurate it would be. Secondly, the eyewitnesses were still alive, and they could confirm or deny. And thirdly, it takes at least three generations before legend can begin to arise. AN Sherwin White from Oxford. An Oxford uh, professor and historian back in the 1960s did a study of the rise of legends and concluded that it would take at least three generations for a legend to arise. So the fact that these descriptions of a resurrection are so close to that actual event when the resurrection was supposed to have occurred shows that it was far too early for these to be legendary accounts. So with these facts even skeptics have to consider that what the disciples wrote about really happened. Or at least that the disciples believed it happened. One such critic said, it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. Now he didn't go so far as to say that they actually saw the risen Christ, but he said they believed they saw the risen Christ the third proof is that the Roman and Jewish leaders couldn't disprove it happened they couldn't disprove that the resurrection had taken place they tried to they desperately wanted to but they couldn't remember they knew where the body had been placed the body of Jesus had been placed in a tomb owned by Joseph of Arimathea they knew where that was Then they sealed that tomb with a huge disc-shaped stone and they placed guards to make sure nobody tried to pull anything. But then what happened? Within three days, the body was missing. And the Roman and the Jewish leaders couldn't produce the body. They couldn't show that the body had been stolen. They couldn't say that it was in a different grave. They couldn't explain why the highly trained guards failed. And they couldn't explain away the appearances, those eyewitness accounts. They had all the motivation and power in the world to squash the claims of the disciples. All they had to do was produce the body. But they simply weren't able to do it because they couldn't disprove it. The fourth proof would be that the disciples were willing to die for their claims. Now, we mentioned just a little while ago about people writing with a vested interest, but did the disciples really have a vested interest? They had nothing to gain if the resurrection didn't happen. They had nothing to gain from making up this story. They would be beaten, they'd be imprisoned, persecuted, they'd be killed for their beliefs, and they could have predicted all of that. After all, that's what happened to Jesus. But they made their claims anyway, and they were put to death for them. Now, I am aware that there have been plenty of people throughout history who have died for their faith, whether what they believed was true or not. We've seen that in recent days with terrorists and with suicide bombers. Listen to this. This is true. People will willingly die for their faith if they believe it's true. They will. If they believe it's true, they will die for their faith. But this is equally true. People will not willingly die for their faith if they know it's false. And the disciples were in a position to know whether what they were saying was true or not. And nobody knowingly dies for a lie. Saying the disciples really did manage to steal the body and make this whole thing up. Don't you think that after the first of them was killed because of what he claimed, that the rest of them would have admitted? Whoa, hold on. We were only joking. We didn't think he'd take us so seriously. Please don't kill us. Don't you think that after the first of them was carted off and executed, the rest of them would admit it that they'd made it up if they had made it up. But that's not what happened. They didn't take back their claims. And one by one, they were put to death for them. Only John survived and they tried to kill him too. Yet not one of them recanted their story. And the fifth proof that Jesus rose from the dead are the modern day accounts. We have already talked about the change that happened in the lives of the disciples. Plus, there were the other eyewitnesses. But you do you realize that Jesus is still changing lives today? Many of us here this morning know this to be true by personal experience. We have a relationship with him today. Our lives have been transformed. And that power to change is only a reality because Jesus rose from the dead and he is alive and well today. Now, these modern-day accounts, really by themselves, don't carry a whole lot of weight because people can get uh, deluded, they, they, they can get emotional, they can be swept up uh, in different movements. But when packaged together with the historical evidence, this personal experience becomes relevant and points toward a resurrection. It points to, toward a living Savior today. So there you have it. Five points of evidence That are best explained by the resurrection. John Singleton Copley was one of the greatest legal minds in history. He was three times the High Chancellor of England. And he declared, I know what evidence is. And evidence like that for the resurrection has never broken down yet. Some of you are familiar with Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel has a Master of Studies in Law degree from Yale. And he was an award-winning journalist for 13 years at the Chicago Tribune. And when it came to Jesus, he was a skeptic. He was an atheist. But when he was forced to reevaluate the evidence for Jesus himself, he had to conclude that the resurrection did occur. That Jesus was who he said he was. And in fact, he's put out an excellent book called The Case for Easter. You may want to pick up a copy and, and flip through it yourself. But Lee Strobel has said... Of his of his journey. He said I had read just enough philosophy and history to find support for my skepticism. A fact here, a scientific theory there, a pithy quote, a clever argument. Sure I could see some gaps and inconsistencies, but I had a strong motivation to ignore them. A self serving and immoral lifestyle that I would be compelled to abandon if I were ever to change my views and become a follower of Jesus. But that's what happened when he evaluated the evidence he had to conclude that it actually happened. When he took the eyes of an investigative reporter and applied them to the evidence for the resurrection, he only had one choice to make, and that was that the resurrection was a reality. Do you remember all those things that Paul said were true if the resurrection didn't occur? He said, my preaching's useless, your faith is useless, we're all just lying about Jesus rising from the dead, we're still lost to our sinfulness with no hope of forgiveness. And in fact, we're the most pitiful people on the planet. Not a pretty picture, is it? But then, because of the evidence, and because Paul himself had had a first-hand encounter with the resurrected Jesus, Paul went on to say this. In verse 20 and verse 23, Paul said, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first of a great harvest of all who have died. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. And that is what I live for. I believe in the resurrection. I think the evidence points to it. And it makes all the difference for me. So let me ask you this. Where do you stand on the evidence? Have you already evaluated it and decided that you can trust it? Have you taken that step in the direction the evidence points? Have you placed your faith in the resurrected Jesus? Because remember, if he rose from the dead, that means he's alive and well today. Or maybe you've never really looked at the evidence before. Maybe you've always been a little skeptical about the the whole faith thing. Let me ask you, what are you going to do with the evidence? Maybe you've never looked at the evidence before, but now you have. Do you find it compelling? I do. So the decision you need to make is, will I take the logical next step in the direction the evidence is pointing and place my faith in Jesus Christ? Will you do that today? Easter is all about